Good morning. I'd like to pick up on the, our series on the Mass. If you were not here for this series and would like to listen to previous teachings, I would encourage you to go to our website. It was necessary that we laid this aside during Advent, Christmas, the Feast of the Epiphany and the Feast of Lights, the baptism of our Lord, the wedding at Cana, and Jesus' announcement of His mission with the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and Ezra reading the Torah to the people of God because they forgot who they were. They forgot their identity as the people of God. I would also like to note that the readings this morning do not correspond to this message because I didn't want to ask the office staff to change them because they were already created, already completed. So I'm not trying to avoid the subject of speaking in tongues. I don't have a problem with that at all. So thank you in advance for understanding. So I'd like to give a very short review of the things that we have talked about. Week one, we talked about how Mass is a blessed encounter. We discussed the meaning of the word Mass and how the Holy Eucharist includes both the ministry of the Word and the ministry of Holy Communion. And both the Word and Holy Communion, or Word and Table, or Word and Sacrament, are equally important. And we talked about how those who have a tendency to lean toward the more evangelical side of Anglicanism have a, have a tendency to focus upon the importance of the Word, and those of the more Anglo-Catholic side have a tendency to focus on the sacraments. And even though we are a church that leans toward more high church, we are a church that embraces both equally. And it's very important that we understand that word and sacrament always go together. Fight the urge to place one over the other. For one to receive Holy Communion, they should be present for the reading of the gospel and for the confession of sin. Week two, we talked about how we are called out from the world. The church has been called out from the world and to a new realm of the kingdom of God. We discussed the use of incense and what it means and how all of our senses are engaged in worship. We talked about the opening processional and the meaning of the sign of the cross. We considered the opening line of the liturgy, the power of declaring ultimate reality in the opening acclamation. Week three, we talked about the great cloud of witnesses because it was the feast of all saints and how there is a thin layer of separation, connectedness, entanglement with those who have, who have faithfully passed on. We enthusiastically celebrate both the baptized saints who are living and faithfully departed. And we made connections with how the mass intersects with those faithfully departed saints. Week four, we talked about the Collect for Purity, the Summary of the Law, the Kyrie, the Trisagion, the Gloria, and the Collect for the Day. And we also talked about the penitential season, which often includes the Great Litany, which we will be using during Lent. And by the way, we will not use it this year just on the first Sunday of Lent. We will be using it every Sunday of Lent. Um, but we also talked about the Decalogue and the Beatitudes. Week 5, we talked about the reading and the proclamation of the Word of God. Scripture reading is so important because we're trying to embody the story of the Bible, not simply note or even memorize its propositional statements. The lectionary of most Western liturgical churches is laid out so that the readings from the Old Testament, Psalm, Epistle, and Gospel tells the story of the Bible once a year. 
We believe that more, the more that we hear the story of God, the better our worldview and lifestyles will be shaped by that story. That is, if we hear it and we respond to the Holy Spirit as He speaks to us and we live obedient lives. The basic task of a sermon is to expound on a passage from the Bible with appropriate background, theology, and history. However, the goal is to make these different topics both understandable and edifying to both inform and form the people of God. Week 6, we talked about Christ the King. The Mass from start to finish is about King Jesus. We declare His glory. We hear salvation history read and proclaimed. And we will touch on how King Jesus is expressed in other parts of the Mass as we continue to move through this series. On Christ the King Sunday, we contemplate King Jesus. We pledge afresh our loyalty and renew our longing for His kingdom rule and reign to come on earth as it is in heaven in me, in you, in us, in our family, in all saints, in our city, in our workplaces, in our deanery, our diocese, etc. It is central to everything that we do in the Mass. So today, I'd like to touch on the creed, the prayers of the people, confession and absolution, and the peace. I know, what an undertaking. But it's a pure and a joyous privilege. You know, I was thinking this morning as I was preparing um, myself to come to uh, the service and really was very humbled and moved to tears about how much I love being a priest and I love being your priest. Thank you, Patty. I appreciate that. I didn't hear anyone else say it, so I appreciate, I appreciate that you do. <laughs> I wasn't looking for feedback there. but <laughs> So let's talk about the creed. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, in reference to the early church right after Pentecost, said this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. In the Mass, as a response to the Word of God read and proclaimed, we stand to affirm our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. Now, at the first ecumenical council, now for those who don't know what an ecumenical council is, it's a council of the whole worldwide universal church. And the one we're referring to specifically is the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. And they met in response to the heresies that were developing in the young churches. The Council of Bishops met in what is modern-day Turkey to determine a concise summary of the Christian faith. So this, their statement of core truths about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is still held by most Christians, um, especially Orthodox Christians. And we express it communally, that is, by saying we believe because it is the church's received faith. That's important to understand. Received faith. We clearly state the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, and we joyfully declare what we believe. Um, alternatively, the, the Apostles' Creed, known as the Baptismal Creed, might be said, and it's particularly said during the week, um, during the weekly masses, and it could also be said during um, the Sundays that we have baptism. Now, the creed summarizes the story of Scripture moving from creation to Christ's incarnation, death, resurrection, ascension, and His promise to come again. 
So in one short statement of faith, we draw out the narrative thread from Genesis to Revelation with a keen eye on the principal actors in this drama. And as I've already stated, that is the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as one theologian has commented, quote, what the scriptures say at length, the creed says briefly, end of quote. Now, I'd like to read, this is a very important passage um, in, in, in Jude chapter 1, and I'd encourage you to um, look at the, like the, the ESV uh, translation, but I'm going to be reading it from the message, but it's very, very important. It says, Dear friends, I've dropped everything to write you about this life of salvation that we have in common. I have to write insisting, begging that you fight with everything that you have in you for this faith entrusted to us as a gift to guard and to cherish. What has happened is, happened is that some people have infiltrated our ranks, our scriptures warned that this was going to happen, who beneath their pious skin are shameless scoundrels. Their design is to replace the sheer grace of God with sheer license, which means doing away with Jesus Christ, the one and only Master. Shame on anyone in the church, including clergy, and especially bishops, who depart from the faith that's been passed down by the apostles, from the apostles, especially when they are called to defend the faith. Over the last couple of weeks, we've probably heard in the news of an archbishop appointing someone in a high position to represent their church family in Rome, who denies the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I don't throw the word around shame very often, as you know, but shame on this particular archbishop. The Anabaptist tradition critiques the creeds and say that it is insufficient. Now why? Because it leaves out the teachings, miracles, and the way of the life of Jesus Christ. So the creed goes from the incarnation to his death and resurrection. Now when I was planning a church in uh, London, England, and uh, working on my doctoral thesis, I was particularly struck by and found uh, Stuart Murray Williams' lectures and writings very helpful, particularly in the subject of post-Christendom, since I was working and studying on missiology. He comes from an Anabaptist tradition, and he was one who boldly talked about the insufficiency of the creeds because they precisely left out the vital teachings of Jesus Christ. And I must say, I agree and think that we should pay attention to this critique and include the life, miracles, and teachings of Jesus in our preaching. And by the way, we do that here at All Saints Cathedral and we do that in the Anglican Church in North America. It's essential to who we are and it's the essence of our discipleship. It doesn't mean that we are to do away with the creed because that's absolutely ridiculous. However, we need to remember that the creed arose during the Christological heretical controversies. Therefore, since it is putting in place truth to confront these heresies, it's understandable why the main focus of the creed is addressing his full divinity and his full humanity. So we hear the full counsel of God's word read and proclaimed, centering our focus on the life and the work of Jesus Christ and proudly stand to proclaim our faith as delivered by the apostles as expressed in the historic creeds. And then after the creed and the mass, we move on to the prayers of the people. Now in the first few centuries, Christians began including prayers for all sorts of human needs and for the work of the church 
as part of the Holy Eucharist. Justin Martyr in 155 AD wrote to the Roman Emperor explaining what Christians did at Mass, giving an outline of the prayers and the rituals. In his letter, he described the intercession prayers offered after the readings from Scripture and the homily, and he says this, quote, Then we all rise together and offer prayers for ourselves and for all others, wherever they may be. And it continues on, but that was the point I wanted to capture here. End of quote. So we stand in this tradition that goes all the way back to Justin Martyr. Actually, the practice goes back even further in Christian history. So when Peter was imprisoned by Herod, the church in Jerusalem offered up earnest prayer for him, and that night an angel came to release him from his chains. And we find that story in Acts chapter 12. So when St. Paul gave instructions to his disciple Timothy, he told him to intercede for all people. And he says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and it pleases God our Savior who wants all people to, to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. And we find that in First Timothy chapter 2. So Paul himself prayed constantly for the needs of his communities. We find that in First Thessalonians chapter 1. And he pleaded with them to pray for his ministry, Second Corinthians chapter 1. So with this strong call for intercession prayer in the New Testament, it is fitting that general intercession formally found a home in the Mass from the earliest centuries of Christianity. So the tradition arose that the vocational deacon, whose ministry is intended to have a special concern for the poor and the needy, a missional heart, often acted as a kind of custodian of these prayers keeping them in some written form and inviting the congregations to add their prayers as well. And the deacon says something like, let us pray for the whole state of Christ's church and the whole world, thus inviting the people to pray. However, some churches have lay people lead in these prayers. Now, since there's a history of lay people at All Saints leading these prayers, and since Deacon Jim is a transitional deacon, meaning that he will eventually be ordained a priest, He's not a vocational, lifelong deacon. We typically, but not exclusively, have lay people lead in the prayers. So up to this point in the Mass, we, uh, the, the faithful have heard the Word of God read, expounded upon in the sermon, summed up in the creed, and even arranged for worship in the liturgy. Now, having been formed in God's Word, the faithful respond with the heart and mind of Jesus by praying for the needs of the church and the world. And since the prayers are meant to be universal in scope for those in authority, for those experiencing various needs and sufferings, and for the salvation of all, the intercession train us to look after not our own interests, but also for the interests of others. And we see that very clearly Um, explained to us in Philippians chapter 2 by St. Paul. So we're offering intercessions for like the universal church, for the nation and those in authority, regardless of your political persuasion, the welfare of the world, concerns of the local community, those who suffer and are, are in trouble. We give thanks and remember those saints who have faithfully departed. Now the last thing regarding the prayers, we pray for those who have departed this life in faith because together with them we await 
the final resurrection of our bodies. We find this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5. So this creates unease for those Anglicans of the evangelical side of the church. This can also create critique and unnecessary judgment from evangelicals outside the Anglican church as well. I think it stems from ignorance. Stems from unknowing, lack of proper teaching more than anything else. So those who have faithfully died rest now in peace, and yet they cry out, as Revelation tells us, How long, O Lord? So as one body of Christ, we share communion with the faithful on earth and in heaven. So our prayers remind us of their example of faith and call us to follow it. I did a whole sermon um, on this uh, on All Saints Day. So if you want to learn a little bit more about that, I encourage you to go back and hear that. So if you want... um, Well, I'll stop at that. So, So this is that thin layer that we talked about, this thin layer of separation connectedness, entanglement with those who have faithfully passed on. Both we and they wait for the resurrection of the dead and the life to come when God truly makes all things new, when He makes the new heavens and the new earth. And all of this is through and because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this is why some of us make the sign of the cross when we say the resurrection of the dead, because of that connection that Jesus Christ provides. So though we all participate in the prayers by saying yes and amen, so let it be God in our hearts and verbally. I do long when more prayers will be contributed by the people aloud. We create space for this. We create pauses for extemporaneous prayers, and they're welcomed from the body of Christ. So I would encourage you to join in in those prayers. I, I realize, you know, when we're praying, sometimes we hear a little bit of mumbling going on in the congregation. And you know what? We don't necessarily have to hear those prayers. God hears those prayers. But there's something also powerful that takes place when you pray them out loud so the rest of the body can join you in that prayer. So I hope that we can grow in this. I know sometimes when we have smaller settings and, and um, smaller services that this takes place a little bit more frequently. But I would encourage us to pray out. Now, the confession of sin at the Holy Eucharist is our admission that we are not the people, the the church that Jesus Christ calls us to be. The word read and proclaimed reveals sinfulness in our lives as the Holy Spirit speaks to us and we respond with confession and repentance. So this is another communal prayer and it begins with, we confess. It's expected that every Christian will have examined his or her conscience individually and will have made a personal confession to God prior to receiving Holy Communion. Now the priest, ministering on behalf of the bishop, representing the whole church, pronounces the absolution, assuring us that Jesus Christ washes away the stain of sin and sets us free to walk in obedience to Him. Now, the priest, as we've talked about before, um, is acting in persona Christi on behalf of and in the person of 
an icon of Jesus Christ. The priest is authorized by the church to be a mouthpiece for forgiveness, to exercise the power to apply God's forgiveness to our sins, a power first given to the apostles in John chapter 20, verse 23. So this is when the risen Jesus appears to his disciples. He breathes on them the Holy Spirit, and he says this, If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So a priest is called to bless who Jesus blesses and forgive who Jesus forgives. If you have more questions about that, feel free to pull me aside and talk with me. I'd love to to share more. Now, the last thing we're going to talk about this morning in the Mass is the peace. Having made peace with God in our confession, we are ready to be part of His body in a way that shows our unity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So we share and we extend the peace of God to one another. It is not intended to be a social time. This is primarily a time to make things right with someone in the congregation in which we are at odds. Now, think about this scene for a moment. So we're in a village in Europe several hundred years ago, and in the village center was a church for the entire village. And I had a business, and you did as well. And during the week, I cheated you on a trade deal. So we're at odds. I'm hiding or lying, and you're demanding payment. And here we are on Sunday in church together. So we have worshipped, we've heard the word read and proclaimed, we've stood to boldly recite the creed and offered our prayers to Almighty God. And I am sure I am feeling a little guilty, hopefully, right? For cheating you during the week. And before taking Holy Communion together and having been reminded of St. Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11, Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. Now, I know there's a little bit more going on there than just this issue, but it includes this for sure. So, it gives an opportunity to reach out. For me to reach out and say, sorry, please forgive me. To right the wrong that's been done, or vice versa. To confess the sin. So, this is the context, and I encourage you not to forget it. Now, please continue to be nice and loving and gracious and welcoming and do a little bit of fellowship and hospitality during this time, but please do not forget the real meaning of this time in the liturgy. It's essential that we understand it. I love the buzz that's created during this time of the service. It's an opportunity, having made peace with God, to make and be in peace with all of those in the body of Christ. Um, As of lately, I've been seeing this increasing buzz taking place at this time in the service. Sometimes it's a buzz just hovering over here in the south transept. And other times, that happens a lot. And other times it's happening over here in the nave. And and I just sit back and, you know, I actually love it. Sometimes when people stand me sitting up there, they're always trying to hush everybody. And I'm like, no, it's okay. Let them. I love to hear the love and the friendliness and the greeting and all of that. And hopefully people making peace with one another. The creed, the prayers of the people, confession and absolution, and the peace. I hope you're finding this series helpful, understanding why we do what we do, why the liturgy is laid out the way it is, can transform our worship, and it can transform our lives. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.